All right, it's good to see you guys again. Um, been away for a few weeks. Uh, it is with great pleasure. I'm really excited about joining you guys and being a part of this ministry. Um, I'd been praying about this for a while. Uh, I've actually been praying for about a year and a half of where future ministry lay for me. Uh, I never thought I would ever leave the Presbyterian denomination, but uh, this is what God wanted, and I genuinely believe this is where, uh, well, this is the right decision that God wanted me to make. Uh, so I'm excited. I hope you guys are excited as well. Um, yeah. So why don't we jump back into our series in Mark? Uh, we're in Mark chapter 2. I don't know how long I'll continue this series, but we'll, we'll see what happens. So we're in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to look at verses 1 to 12. Mark chapter 2, verses 1 to 12. I bought a new NIV Bible to celebrate as well. <laughs> I'm switching from the ESV. But. All right. Um, the Word of God reads, A few days later, when Jesus again entered Capernaum, the people heard that he had come home. They gathered in such large numbers that there was no room left, not even outside the door. And he preached the word to them. Some men came, bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Since they could not get to him, or get to Jesus rather, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and then lowered the mat the man was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralyzed man, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, Why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Immediately, Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take your mat and walk. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he said to the man, I tell you, get up, take your mat and go home. He got up, took his mat and walked out in few, full view of them all. This amazed everyone and they praised God saying, we have never seen anything like this. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we, we pray to approach this passage uh, with sincere and humble hearts, uh, not to sugarcoat where we are, but to bring ourselves to you as we are. We pray through the power of the Holy Spirit that we would be able to see the true condition of where we are and seek the help and the healing that we need in Jesus and through your word. Father, we pray as we study the signs and the miracles that we would look to what these signs are pointing to. And I pray that you would watch over the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Any uh, BTS fans here? No? Well, I've been in youth ministry for a while and uh, so many BTS Fans, so many people that like proudly say, I am in the BTS army. I think that's what they call it, the fan group, if you're a fan. And um, I've met a lot of people, not just high school students, but like young adult and uni students that are obsessed with BTS. And I think, I don't know the name, all I know is Jimin and Sugar. Uh, that's all I know. 
Uh, there's two people. One, I don't know if they're the same. They're not the same person, are they? No. But they're obsessed, and they're very proud of the fact that they know everything about these people. Their favorite singer. They know everything. And they know when they're born, what hospital they were born in, what primary school they went to, what junior high, what high school they went to. They know what type of music they like, what type of food they like. Uh, they know everything about these people. And sometimes I like to kind of get a reaction from them and I'll say something to just provoke them. I'm like, you don't know that much about them. It's like, whoa, no, I know everything about them. And they get really defensive about it. And they're very proud of the fact that they know so much about this singer. And yet, despite how proud they feel, all the knowledge that they have about their favorite singer, I would guarantee you that they would give all of that up in a moment if instead of knowing about these people, that they could know these people. And what I mean by that is they might know everything about these people, these singers, Jimin, Sugar, anyone else in BTS, or their favorite celebrity. But if I were to come up to them and say, you know what? You might know of them, everything about them, but I actually know these people. I actually went to Korea. If I, I went to Korea in November, if I were to have come back and said to my students, you know what? I'm actually related to Sugar and Jimin. I got to have dinner with them. They, they will be like so, can, can I meet them? Can you organize? Just, I just want to be in the same room as them. They would be so excited about this. And the reason I share this with you is because when it comes to our Christian walk with Jesus, when it comes to walking with God, I think for so many of us, including myself from time to time, there are times where I focus on secondary things. I focus on knowing things about God and religious things. I focus on church and, you know, studying the Bible. And sometimes I forget subconsciously that all these things are meant to be pointing to something greater. I'm not just called to know about God, but this knowledge about God is meant to point and lead me to knowing God, an intimate and personal relationship. All these things are pointing to something greater. And that's something we'll unpackage as we look at today's passage, as Jesus heals a paralytic man. Now, if you remember the earlier uh, sermon series on Mark, you'll recall a few things that happened in chapter 1. Uh, firstly, John the Baptist, the cousin of Jesus, prepares the way for the Christ. Um, Jesus then appears, he gets baptized, and he begins what would be a three-year ministry. Uh, and then we saw that Jesus entered into the city of Capernaum. He went into the synagogues. He began preaching and he cast out demons. And once he cast out this demon, the whole town, everyone in Capernaum comes looking for Jesus. And they don't just come to see him. They bring all of their sick, all of their demon possessed. If there were hospitals, they probably took all the patients out, brought them to Jesus. And he spends an entire evening from like afternoon until the early hours of the morning healing the sick, the unwell, and casting out demons. And then towards the end of chapter 1, we find that after he gets maybe like a couple of hours sleep, he gets up in the early hours of the morning and he slips away to spend time alone with God, praying to him. Peter and then the other disciples wake up and they see that Jesus is gone and they go looking for him. And when they do find him, they say to Jesus, what are you doing? Everyone in Capernaum is looking for you. Everyone's looking for you. Like, he's this exciting opportunity. An entire town is waiting to hear you speak. 
But Jesus isn't excited. He doesn't reciprocate that excitement. Instead, he says, let's go somewhere else. And so Jesus leaves Capernaum, and then kind of chapter 1 kind of concludes with Jesus going through Galilee, preaching from synagogue to synagogue and performing more miracles. Now in chapter 2, in today's passage, Jesus returns to Capernaum. And unsurprisingly, like everyone's been waiting for Jesus' return. And once again, in verse 2, it seems that the entire town has shown up at Peter's home. And whenever you read through the New Testament Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and you hear you know, a large crowd gathered, uh, we're not just talking about a couple of people. It's not like 20, 30 people. But when a large crowd, it says, gathered at the home, it's like a, it's like a can of sardines. Everyone's just jam-packed together. And you've got to really squeeze. I don't know if you've ever been um, on a train in Korea in peak hour, but Asian trains in general, if you go there in peak hour, you really got to like push and squeeze your way past people. This was what it was like. Everyone was squished into Peter's home. And because it was a full house, there was even a group of people just standing outside, looking through the windows and doors, trying to get a glimpse of Jesus. Everyone wanted a piece of him. And so Jesus begins preaching. And, you know, the content of what he actually preached, uh, we will never know on this side of eternity. Uh, But I would assume that he was preaching the gospel, and the gospel is about himself. So by logic, I think that Jesus was talking about himself. Um, But then in the middle of the sermon, verse 3, it says that some men came bringing to him a paralyzed man carried by four of them. Four guys were carrying their paralytic friend, their friend who was paralyzed from the waist down, unable to walk. And presumably they'd heard about Jesus and his ability to heal, his ability to cure uncurable illnesses, heal the unhealable. And they wanted their friend to experience this kind of a healing. But as they approached the home of Peter, where Jesus was preaching, they would have been greeted by the sight of the entire town squished into this tiny home and a massive crowd gathered outside. It would have been hard, even if you were by yourself, to squeeze in and get an audience with Jesus, let alone four guys carrying a stretcher on their shoulders. And I think For most people, if it were me and I was carrying someone on my shoulders to see Jesus and I saw this massive crowd, I would have been like, oh, I probably would have given up. I would have said to my friend, you're on your own. I've brought you this far. But it wasn't the case with these four. Instead, what they do is they climb onto the roof of Peter's home. And verse 4 says that since they could not get to him, to Jesus, because of the crowd, they made an opening in the roof above Jesus by digging through it and lowering the mat that the man was lying on. Now, to give you a bit of context, uh, the homes back then weren't like the homes today. Um, If someone dug a hole through my roof, I would be very, very annoyed. Um, It's not like today, the houses. It's not like they took a sledgehammer and smashed a a roof through the ceiling of Peter's home. Uh, That would have been very, very irritating for Peter. Um, Instead, the the way that the homes were built was... They would have the four walls and then they'd have these giant wooden beams that would run across the ceiling and then these wooden beams would be covered and sealed off with like branches and leaves and whatnot and hay. Uh, And so what these guys had done was that they'd climbed onto the roof, carried the stretcher up and they were standing on these wooden beams, moving these branches, pulling them apart, digging through them and creating a giant hole 
that was big enough to hoist their friend through and lower him to see Jesus. It wouldn't have been a sledgehammer through the roof. Um, Now, Jesus looks up, and everyone looks up, and people were probably wondering, what's going on? Uh, But Jesus knows. He knows what they desire of him. He knows the effort that they've expended. Four friends carrying a fully grown man on a stretcher on their shoulders, climbing up onto a roof, carrying this guy onto the roof, digging a hole and lowering their friend. Jesus knows exactly why they've come to him. He knows that they've come so that he can do the impossible. And they would have anticipated something awesome. Because even for today, if you're a paraplegic and you're in a wheelchair, despite all the advancements of modern medicine, there's only so much that they can do for you today. And so bearing all this in mind, uh, when Jesus sees this paralytic man being lowered, he says something very peculiar. Uh, because you got to remember, they came to be healed, to get their friend healed. They wanted their friend who'd been a paraplegic for who knows how long. They wanted him to be able to walk again. That's what they wanted from Jesus. Uh, but then Jesus, when he sees them in verse 5, says, Son, your sins are forgiven. Your, your sins, I forgive you. Now, if I were the paralytic man or the four friends, I think I would have been a bit insulted. I would have felt a bit shortchanged because I didn't come to have my sins forgiven. I came so that I could walk again. And for the four friends, they just spent hours carrying their friend on their shoulders, climbing onto a roof, carrying their friend onto a roof, digging a hole through a stranger's roof, lowering their crippled friend on a stretcher. It's pretty obvious I didn't come for forgiveness or to get forgiveness for my friend. I came so that my friend could be healed. And you kind of expect a negative reaction from the friends, but the reaction that Mark records in this passage isn't from them, but from another group of people. Verse 6 and 7, it says that now some teachers of the law were sitting there thinking to themselves, why does this fellow talk like that? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sin but God alone? Jesus' response, son, your sins are forgiven. It's triggered a reaction from the Bible teachers in Capernaum. They just heard Jesus verbally declare forgiveness of sin over an individual by his own authority. And the reason it triggered a reaction is because Jesus didn't offer forgiveness by praying to God. He didn't say, Father, if, you, if, if it be your will, can you, can you please forgive these guys? But instead, instead of appealing to a higher authority, Jesus, by his own authority, verbally declares forgiveness over this man. And the reason it triggered a reaction from the Bible teachers is because they knew, and correctly knew, that the only being that can offer forgiveness is the being that has been sinned against. Because that's what sin is. Sin As much as we might sin against each other, ultimately sin is a crime committed against a holy God. It is an offense against a holy God. And so the only one that can forgive sin is the one that's been offended, God himself. Now, Jesus is able to pick up on what they're thinking. And he sets a trap for them. 
In verses 8 and 9, it says, Immediately Jesus knew in his spirit that this was what they were thinking in their hearts. And he said to them, Why are you thinking these things? Which is easier, to say to this paralyzed man, Your sins are forgiven? Or to say, Get up, take up your mat, and walk. Now, why do I say that this was a trap? I say it's a trap because regardless of which of these two things that you might think is easier to accomplish, neither of them can be achieved without God's intervention. Sin, I've already explained, can only be forgiven by God himself. Healing is something that can only be achieved by the power of God himself. Now, you might think, well, what about the Old Testament? If you read through the Old Testament, you, you'll see prophets in the Old Testament that performed healing, don't you? Like you might be thinking, well, if you look at the prophet Elijah, he healed people, didn't he? Or the prophet Elisha, he healed people. And that's true. But if you read these passages, one detail that you will find is that the only way that they were able to heal was by appealing to a higher authority. The prophet Elijah in the Old Testament raises a young boy from the dead, but he doesn't do it by his own authority. 1 Kings 17 verse 21, it says, when raising a dead boy to life, the passage reads that Elijah cried out, Lord, my God, let this boy's life return to him. And the boy does rise from the dead, but it's only because the Lord heard Elijah's cry. That's what one king says. So even in the Old Testament, any kind of healing is only made possible because the person invoked or appealed to a higher authority. And so Jesus, he poses this question. He asks the teachers of the law, what's easier, to say your sins are forgiven or to say to a paraplegic man, get up and walk? And the teachers know that both of these things are only possible by the power of God. They know that whichever one you pick, both are impossible for man alone. And so if we read on to verses 10 to 12, we see what Jesus does next. Jesus responds in verses 10 to 12. But I want you to know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. So he says to the man, I tell you, get up, take up your mat and go home. And this man took up his mat and walked out in full view of them all. And this amazed everyone. And they praised God, saying, we have never seen anything like this. And so going back to that question, which is easier to perform? The reason Jesus asked this was to set a trap. Because it was a rhetorical question. He wasn't really wanting an answer from them. But what he was trying to do was point out something important to them. That the person who has authority to do one of these things surely has the authority to do the other. If you have the power to heal a person by your own power and your own authority, then surely these, this person possesses divine qualities. And if you possess divine qualities, then you have the power to forgive sin. Because if you look at the way Jesus heals this paraplegic man, Jesus doesn't appeal to a higher authority. If you read through the Gospels, whenever Jesus heals someone, he doesn't pray, God, if it be your will, heal this person, but he commands the healing, doesn't he? When he casts out demons, he doesn't appeal 
to a higher authority. He doesn't say, Father, please, if it be your will, can you, can you get rid of this demon? He tells the demon, get out. In, last, uh, in chapter 1, when we saw Jesus heal Peter's mother-in-law, he doesn't appeal to a higher authority, but he heals Peter's mother-in-law by his own authority. The authority and the power comes from himself. And Jesus says, part of the reason that this man is going to be healed is so that everyone can witness his divine authority. They can see and understand that he has divine authority and power, that he possesses an authority that's on par with the Father. And I think Jesus, because he was preaching, would have probably alluded to this in his sermon as well. His ability to heal his ability to cast out demons, all the miraculous things, like miraculous signs that were performed. The purpose of these was to point to his power and his authority. The fact that it pointed to his divinity, his godness. And if it pointed to his divinity, his godness, then the logical conclusion that you have to reach is that if this guy is on par with God, then he must have the authority to forgive sin. And so that's how the passage ends. It ends with everyone being amazed. We've never seen anything like this, they say. Uh, and they said this back then in the New Testament, and I think if we saw something like that today, we'd probably say the same thing, wouldn't we? If we saw a paralytic man healed and get up, we'd probably say, we've never seen anything like this. And the passage ends. And so once again, as we reach the end of the passage, we have to ask uh, that important question that I think Eddie used to ask when he'd preach as well. And that question is, so what? What can we take away from this particular passage? And as usual, I want to share some of the, uh, some observations. I've only got two of them. Uh, but I'm hoping it'll help shape the way you relate to Jesus and the way you walk with Jesus and the first point I want to make is that Christ is meant to become the object of your hope. Let me repeat that. Christ is meant to become the object of your hope. Now, if you've been going to church for a while, this might sound pretty obvious. It might even sound a bit condescending. It's like, yeah, I know that. I've been walking with Jesus for like decades. Uh, but let me give you a bit of context to explain where I'm coming from. In today's passage, there were two groups of people that Mark mentioned in these 12 verses. There were the four friends who carried their paralytic friend to see Jesus. And then on the other hand, there were the people of Capernaum uh, who were hearing Jesus preach, and this included the Bible teachers that Jesus addresses. Now, I mentioned in a previous sermon that one thing about the people of Capernaum was that they totally missed the point about who Jesus was. When they looked to Jesus, they were excited about Jesus, but they totally missed the point of why they should be excited about Jesus. When they looked at Jesus, they saw an exorcist, which is pretty cool. I've never seen anyone cast a demon out. I hope to one day be able to see that. They saw an exorcist. They saw an awesome preacher. And they saw a miracle worker, someone that could heal incurable diseases. They saw a man performing signs and wonders, and yet, they totally missed the point of who he was. They failed to understand that Jesus was God's promised Messiah, 
that he was the Christ, the son of the living God, second person of the Trinity. They failed to understand and remember the words of John the Baptist. When John the Baptist looked at Jesus, he said, look, behold, the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. Even in today's passage, they failed to realize that the point of the miracle, the healing, was to legitimize and establish the fact that Jesus has divine authority because he does the impossible by healing a paralytic and he does it by his own power. doesn't appeal to a higher authority, he appeals to his own authority. The purpose of the sign is to point to his godness, to not only heal the sick, but in his godness, point to his ability to forgive sin. The people of Capernaum totally missed the point. And today's passage ends with the fact that they're not, they're not amazed that Jesus forgave the sin. They're amazed that Jesus healed the paralytic man. They're amazed at the sign, but they forgot and missed the very thing that the sign was pointing to. Because what's the purpose of a sign? Just logically, the purpose of a sign is to point people to something, to direct their attention to something. And for everyone here today, I want you to understand this. The purpose of signs and miracles in the New Testament, the purpose of miracles isn't for us to focus on the miracle. It's not for us to pursue our life, like in our lives to pursue a desire to be able to perform miracles either. That wasn't the purpose of the sign. The purpose of the sign was to point to who Jesus was, to uncover to the world more and more of his identity. It is true that Jesus healed people out of love and compassion. When he saw people suffering, he, he really felt for them. But the primary purpose of the miracles and the signs was to point to the fact that he was the Messiah that God had promised from the Old Testament. It wasn't so that we could become miracle workers. It wasn't to pursue a gift of healing. It wasn't to try and raise people from the dead and experience these kinds of crazy things. The point of the miracles and the signs was so that people would understand who Jesus was. And you see this through the Gospels. Like it was a fulfillment of the Old Testament promises. If you read through the Gospels, you'll find that the Gospel writers recorded specific healings. They talk about Jesus healing a mute person. They talk about Jesus healing a deaf person. They talk about Jesus healing crippled people and blind people. But the purpose of these things recorded wasn't so that we could become faith healers or miracle workers. But again, it was to point to the fact that Jesus was doing these things to fulfill the Old Testament promises. Because if you look at the Old Testament, passages like Isaiah 35. I remember I got goosebumps when I read this after I read the Gospels for the first time. Isaiah 35, written hundreds of years before Jesus, alludes. If you ever read a book from the Old Testament, read Isaiah. It's just so many things in Isaiah that are so eerily, vividly talking about Jesus hundreds of years before Jesus. But Isaiah 35, verses 5 and 6, written hundreds of years before, before Christ, it states that then, like when the Messiah appears, then 
eyes, the eyes of the blind will be opened. The ears of the deaf will be unstopped or unplugged. The lame or the crippled will leap like a deer and the mute tongue will shout for joy. Isaiah predicted that when the Messiah would come, that these things would be seen by the world. And it's no coincidence that the gospel writer, writers record these miracles because the purpose of these signs isn't to focus on the signs, but to look beyond the sign and understand that all the signs in the Bible are pointing to Christ and who he is. It's not for us to become miracle workers. It's not for us to sit and marvel and just gawk at the sign. What a waste of a life that would be. That God gives you a sign and instead of looking at what the sign's pointing, that, uh, pointing at, that we spend our entire lives just studying the sign itself. That's a nice sign. The signs in the New Testament were pointing to the Messiah, the second person of the Godhead, the Savior of the world and the Lamb of God who would take away the sins of the world. The purpose of the signs was so that we might recognize this Jesus and make him the object of our love and our hope. And when this happens, what you'll find is that as you look to what this sign is pointing to and embrace this Christ, you'll find that you will experience more and more encounters with Jesus that are transforming and life-changing. In today's passage, we saw that the paralytic man was carried towards the Christ. This paralytic man and the four friends looked to Christ as the object of their hope. And what did they receive in return? What did the paralytic man receive in return? His life was transformed forever, wasn't it? He did receive healing, yes. He received the physical healing. But guess what? He also received spiritual healing. Because not only did Jesus restore his body, but he did something even more important. He forgave this man's sins. He restored this man's soul. And what's so crazy is that even if it's not intentional, and I know it's not just me because this happens to me as well, is that so often I subconsciously make so many other things the object of my hope. And I say it's not on purpose because sometimes we think we're heading in the right direction. But then later on, we look back at where we were back then and we, we start to realize, oh, Christ wasn't actually the object of my hope. And I say this as a pastor because even as a pastor, when you prepare sermons and when you study at Bible college, it's so easy to make studying the Bible an obsession. Bible, studying the Bible is a good thing. But what I mean is, so, so often I've studied this book, read countless commentaries by different theologians and Bible professors, and I realized later on that I was so focused on accumulating knowledge of this book that I forgot to experience the one that this book was pointing to. Like my high school students that are obsessed with BTS. I became so obsessed with knowing about God that I forgot that knowing about God was meant to lead to me knowing God personally. And as I was preparing this sermon, I was watching my wife this week. Sometimes I just stare, oh my, what's my wife doing? And she loves going on her phone and um, 
we agreed that we would set like a, a, an official, we didn't have an official date night, like once a fortnight, let's go out on a date. And we agreed, okay, let's make once a fortnight uh, a date night. And one thing she loves doing is going through her Google Maps. And when my wife comes here, if you ever see her Google Maps, it, it's, I was quite horrified when I saw it. Um, she likes to find cafes and restaurants that are quite fancy and nice. And like look, looks pretty and the food on you know Google reviews looks amazing and she looks for places with good reviews and she locks it in. You can bookmark on Google Maps and it'll plant like a green flag on your map of Sydney. And when I say I was horrified, I look at her Google Maps and you can't even see the map. It's just filled with flags everywhere. I'm like, mate, in one lifetime, we're never going to be able to visit all these places. But she, she likes doing this. She likes looking at photos of the food that these cafes and restaurants make. And she flags it with the desire to go and eat at these places. What a sad thing it would be for her if she were to flag all these places and never go visit them. Or if I were to take her to a nice restaurant like once a year uh, on our wedding anniversary, we, we agreed we'd go to a nice restaurant. What a sad thing it would be if we went to a restaurant, opened the menu, read the menu about what kind of food that they serve, and just closed it and walked out being satisfied with that. That's not the life that God called us to. God called us to not only study this book, but to look past it and see the one that this book was pointing to. To not just look at a menu, but to taste of God's goodness. And experience firsthand that he is a good God. And so often in my life, I've looked back and it's just such a frustrating thing that so often I realize I've just been satisfied with secondhand testimonies, reading what Bible professors said about God, hearing what other preachers have to say about God, and being moved by that, forgetting the fact that I can experience this goodness myself that I can taste of God's goodness for myself and be able to tell other people, declare it, not just because I heard it from someone else, but to declare from the very depths of my heart how good this God is and to be able to urge people to make Christ the object of their hope. The purpose of the signs that Jesus performed in the New Testament the purpose of scripture itself in its entirety isn't for us to sit there and idolize the miracles or even idolize scripture, but to taste and experience of God's goodness firsthand. And the way we do this is by making Christ the object of our hope. Second and final point, your sacrificial love has the power to change lives in today's passage, we see a very powerful demonstration of sacrificial love through the actions of the friends of the paralytic man. If you read this account, it seems like these friends have a secondary role in the story. Like it, it doesn't seem like they're the main focus of the story. It seems like Jesus, the paralytic man, and the teachers of the law are the main story, and these guys are just kind of like extras in, in the narrative of this passage. However, despite this, I think it would be a grave mistake to downplay the role that these friends played in today's narrative. 
It is true that very little detail is given about these friends. We don't know their names. We don't know how old they were. We don't know what kind of work they did. We know nothing about them. But even with the little information we are given, we can still draw an undisputable observation that these guys genuinely loved their friend. And that was proven by their actions. They loved their friend so much that they put him on a stretcher, hoisted him on their shoulders, and they set out to Peter's home in the hope that they might gain an audience with Jesus. They loved their friend so much that after carrying him for hours, arriving at their destination and seeing that the home of of Peter was jam-packed, there was no way in. They loved their friend so much that they weren't deterred by this sight. They didn't give up hope. But their sacrificial love, the love that they had for their friend, drove them to be willing to do anything to make it possible for their friend to meet Jesus. They loved their friend so much that they physically climbed onto the roof and lifted their friend on a stretcher. My wife sometimes asks me to piggyback her, and when she jumps on my back, I'm like, oh my goodness, my back's going to break. But these guys lifted a fully grown man. It's not because I think my wife, I'm just a weak guy. I hope she's not listening. Um, But they they carried their friend onto the roof. This is sacrificial love, isn't it? And not only that, they dig a hole through the roof of someone they don't know. If anyone's going to have to pay financial compensation for this, it's going to be the friends. And yet, out of love for their friend, they're willing to demonstrate countless instances of sacrificial love. And what we find in today's passage is that their actions weren't in vain. Because not only does their friend end up being physically restored, but he ends up being spiritually healed, doesn't he? His relationship with God is restored. Not only is he given the ability to walk again, but he's able to now stand on his own two feet and have a relationship with God. He no longer is stuck knowing about God, but he's able to know God personally. And in the same way as we live our Christian lives, yes, you know, the object of our love is to be Christ. We are to love Jesus. But the greatest command teaches that we are to love the Lord our God with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, vertical love, but also a horizontal love. God commands us to love our neighbors as ourselves. Just as God is meant to be the object of our sacrificial love, people of this world are also called to be the object of our sacrificial love. This agape love. And the reason for that is because agape love is a powerful thing. Uh, During my time in ministry, and you've probably met people like this as well, I've encountered a few people uh, that came up to me and they kind of challenged, laid down a challenge and they They laid down a challenge saying that it's their belief that they don't need to go to church to be a Christian. They say, I don't need need church. I don't need to be a part of a community. I don't need to hear a sermon. I don't don't need any of this. I just need Jesus and my Bible. Because God's everywhere, isn't he? 
And I think the answer that I gave over the course of time has changed. But the biblical reality is that God has not designed his people to live the Christian life solo. God has designed his people to live life together, to worship him in community. That's why the gospel isn't just vertical. It's not just love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. It's not just living in relationship with God, but it's meant to be horizontally in community with each other. This means that the object of our love is not just God, but people and communities. And the love we demonstrate as followers of Christ, we're called to emulate the perfect model of love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross, an agape sacrificial love. And what's crazy about agape love is that it gives birth to life. We see agape love that Jesus demonstrated by going to the cross give birth to life for anyone who would believe. We see this sacrificial love in the four friends today gives birth to life because this guy is now not only physically restored but spiritually healed. And so we're called to demonstrate and live demonstrating this kind of a love because it's a love that begets life. It's a love that is never in vain. It's a love that has the potential and the power to change the lives of people around you forever. What an awesome, awesome thing to be a part of. So those are the two points I want to conclude with today. The first is to make Christ the object of your hope. Because we're not just called to sit there focusing on the sign, but to look beyond the sign and see that everything is pointing to Christ. And lastly, uh, to remember that your sacrificial love has the power to change lives. Whether it's at work, whether it's at school, every encounter that you have with someone you don't know is an encounter with someone that can potentially be or become a son or daughter of the Most High God. And the way God has chosen to make disciples is by using us as agents. I don't know why he, why he did it this way, but this is the way he's decreed it, that through his people he's going to make disciples. And one of the ways we make disciples is by demonstrating sacrificial love. And so I'd like us to enter into a time of prayer at this stage. Uh, I don't know where you're at in your walk with God, uh, but maybe spend a bit of time in careful reflection of where you're at spiritually. Maybe you're like me, where so often, you know, I, I, I spend so much time focusing on the signs, making so many other things my obsession, forgetting that these things are meant to be pointing me to something greater. Uh, if that is the case, I encourage you to spend a bit of time in repentance and ask, asking God to just re rewire your heart, rewire where you're at with him so that you can focus and make Christ the object of your hope. Uh, and secondly, to not downplay uh, your potential in the lives of other people that your interactions with people, the sacrificial love that you demonstrate to them, even if you see no fruits from all your efforts, 
to understand, have God open your eyes to understand that sacrificial love has power. It has the power to transform lives. This is the way God's designed it. So let's pray for these two things. One, to understand that Christ is to be the object of our hope. And secondly, to remind ourselves daily that the sacrificial love that we demonstrate has the power to change lives. Let's pray. praise are to be pointing our minds and our hearts to Christ. We pray that you will realign and rewire our hearts so that we can be captivated, not to be satisfied with staring at a photo or something secondary, but to desire Christ himself, not just to know of him, but to know him personally. Father, we pray that we would live lives of sacrificial love, that we will not downplay the world that you have created us as agents. Father, we thank you for the cross. We thank you that through the sacrificial love of Christ that we can come to you as we are. We can pray to you and present the condition of our souls as it is. That we don't have to pretty it up and pretend like it's something that it's not. But that we can come seeking you as the great physician. The physician that diagnoses where we're going wrong. That can provide healing in our time of need. And so Lord, I don't know where everyone in this room is at spiritually. But we are all descendants of Adam. And it is inevitable that there are so many times where we make secondary things the primary obsession when everything should be pointing us to Christ. I pray for FLM to not be a congregation that settles with simply knowing about you, but that clinging to everything that you have given us, that we would run to Christ himself, seeking an audience with Christ himself and tasting of Christ himself and being able to declare firsthand, not being satisfied with someone else's testimony, but to desire our own personal encounter with God. I pray this over all of us and for myself. And Father, we pray to never downplay the role that we have to play in the advancement of your kingdom, to understand that what's revealed to us in Scripture, what you have decreed is for your people to be agents, disciple makers, to be a people that emulates the agape love that Jesus demonstrated on the cross, to demonstrate this to a fallen world so that they may see an unconditional love that they can't find anywhere else, that they might experience a tangible encounter with Jesus through our interactions with them. And so, Lord, we ask these things 
Not because we're doing them so well already, but because we need to grow from day to day in these things. Because we need your strength to be able to do these things. And so I pray that your grace and your blessing would be provided and provided in abundance so that we can be effective kingdom workers. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.